Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon. Turn with me in God's Word to um, the book of 1 Peter. We're going to look at a little section in 1 Peter. Um, I'll read from chapter 2, verse 4 to chapter 2, verse 12. It's on page 1218 in the church Bibles in front of you. Is this on? Yeah. So before we come to read it, and before, basically I'm giving myself some extra leg room in terms of when I get to, to speak later, because it then doesn't count in terms of how long I was actually preaching for. Um, context is very important at this point in time. Um, just over the page from chapter 2, where we're going to be reading, we hear Peter talking to a whole group of people, chapter 1, verse uh, 1 and 2. He's talking to a whole group of people who are God's elect strangers in the world, exiles, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through uh, the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ by the sprinkling of His blood. That's to say, there's a group of people who are believers. There's a group of people who are Christians. They know God. They have been born again into a living hope that will not spoil, perish, or fade. But they are all over this big area of the known world. They're all over one specific area, and it's very difficult to keep going as exiles in a world which is totally anti the gospel, which is not really open to hearing about who this Jesus is. And that's an important backdrop for us to have as we read this section in God's Word, but also as we come to hear from it later on. This is a group of people who are going through real struggles about what it means to live and love and follow Jesus in their everyday existence in a world which is totally against everything that they stand for and totally against the truth that God is who He says He is. So with that in mind, we're going to read from chapter 2 verse 4 to verse 12. We're going to look down to verse 10, but I'll read that section for us. Page 1218 of the church Bibles. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. 
Amen. This is God's Word for us this morning, and we trust that by the Spirit at work amongst us today, He will teach us um, His Word. Well, let me invite you to stand as we sing and come to hear from God's Word, the wonderful song about the Holy Spirit being God's living breath, as a, a song of praise, yes, but also a prayer and an affirmation that we need God to show up and to teach us and to speak this morning. So let's stand and sing to God's praise. Well, let me invite you to turn again in the Bibles from where we've just read to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 10. And as we're turning there, let me pray. Father, we come to you and we come in humility because we know that we cannot understand these things without your help and without your guidance, without the powerful work of your Spirit to light up your word and to change and challenge our hearts. So our prayer this morning is very simple. We ask that you would teach us uh, your word so that we would know your will and Father that you would teach us your way so that we would walk in it for your glory and for the fame of your name throughout the whole world. Amen. So I don't know about you but I, I find pictures very powerful um, a few weeks ago, uh, there was a very famous uh, football player, a man called Billy McNeil, um, who some of us will have a great passionate interest in, and for others of us, well, the illustration totally goes out the window. But Billy McNeil was the first ever British person to lift the European Cup with Celtic in 1967, and he died um, not so long ago. And it's one of these things which is etched into sporting um, folklore, into sporting history, this scene of the man holding the cup above his head. What about another person from sporting history who had passed away this week? A man called Nicky Lauda, who was one of the world's greatest uh, drivers. And there is that picture etched into my mind of this man burning for a minute in about 800 degrees heat as the fuel tank exploded around about him and he survived. It's one of those images that doesn't go out of my head. Or what about the most famous image that exists in the world? Well, we've all seen it. It's the image of the, the young girl running in horror and in fear for her life as the napalm explodes behind her and she is naked and she is crying out in horror and in anguish as she sees everything around her being consumed. It is an iconic photograph, and it is reckoned to be the most famous photograph that's ever been taken. And you see, pictures are powerful. Just even hearing about them will have evoked memories. They will have evoked emotions in us. And although these images are static, they can transport us to a place that we are not present in. They can take us, or they can give us insight to the emotion that must have been feeling to a, a little bit of an, a glimmer of the reality of life in that moment. But pictures can also be uh, used to communicate things that are not true, can't they? I mean, if I'm you and I'm sitting listening to me, I'm sitting going, I mate, but wait a minute. Uh, people can Photoshop things and they can change photographs and they can make things other things. They can, they can change it. They can doctor it. And that's true. They can be constructed and cropped. They can be adjusted and edited to fit the agenda of the person who is taking them or the people who have uh, commissioned the, the photographs. They can be altered. Well, Peter is very aware, he's well aware of the power of a picture. 
Peter is so aware of the power of a picture because he is living in a world where pictures were so common, where pictures were used all of the time in every aspect of life to communicate the importance and the power of the Roman Empire. He's living at a point in time where there were so many murals and etchings, so many statues, so many temples. Everything was constructed visually for people to be able to identify what was taking place in front of them. Everything was constructed in such a way to explain to everyone in the known world that Rome ruled and that there was no other. Rome was in charge politically and spiritually there was plurality. You could do what you wanted spiritually as long as you did not defame the the ruler of the world, the emperor. And if it was common for him, Peter, then it would also have been common to those people he was writing to as well, wouldn't it? I mean, it seems to make sense. They're all living in the same world, so they're seeing the same things. Yeah, they might see them a little bit differently, but they see the same pictures. So what does this pastor, what does Peter, the pastor, do for a group of people who are bombarded with lots of different images? What does he want to do for them, the people that he loves and that he cares about? How does he equip them to combat the world that they find themselves in? Well, he doesn't do anything new. He points the churches back to the great acts of God. Because what he wants them to recognize is that these are the images which should fill their minds. These are the things which will uh, help them as they are bombarded with the images of a pagan culture. And friends, this is not something which is locked to the past. This is not something which only applies to Peter's day and generation. We live in such an image-driven culture that it is important that we recognize that there are similar realities at play today. You see, now as then, having the right pictures in mind is absolutely essential. Having the right pictures in mind is what will help us live as healthy disciples, and having those pictures in mind will remind us of that great hope which is to come, of what Jesus has done for us already, and it will help us to remember that our exile in this world has a definitive end. So I want to gather our thoughts under two um, headings. The first is the picture of God's presence, verses 4 to 8, and then also the picture of God's people, which we see in verses 9 and 10. So the picture of God's presence, verses 4 to 8. What is the first image that Peter draws out for the churches and for us? What's the first thing he uh, makes, uh, points us towards? Well, we enter into a construction site. That's where he wants to take us, and we hear about a brilliant building uh, being made. But how does that help people who are living as exiles? That's my first question. I look and go, very good, you've taken us to a big place where there's lots of stones getting put around. What's that got to do with my everyday existence in a pagan culture? How does this help me to live as an exile in a broken world with lots of social, political, and spiritual pressures, Peter? Well, the picture that Peter wants to encourage these exiles with is that God has chosen to live with them. God has chosen to live with them. Because of Jesus, because of Christ, God is not distant looking on from the sidelines. He's not someone who is cheering on from the edge of the park saying, woo, this is great. He is in the middle with his people. God is at work. In fact, he is present living with these people in the middle of the mess that they find themselves in their everyday existence. He is not distant and detached, which is one of the greatest lies and fallacies that happened during the Christendom age. 
that God is somewhere up and out there when actually he has told us so frequently in his word, he is down and here amongst us by the power of his spirit, ready, active, and willing to save. You see, so much of what people understand God to be is that he's the guy kind of out there, like a fuzzy big panda in the sky. Whereas actually what we see in the Bible consistently is God is present amongst his people, and that is his great desire. This is what all the language about living stones in a spiritual house is about, isn't it? Verse 5, you are like living stones being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. That's what all this language about stones is about. The people of God, prior to coming to Christ, the temple, that one building in the world, in that city called Jerusalem, was the place where God would meet meet with people. It was the only place in the world where God would meet with humanity. But because of what Jesus has done, this was no longer the case. God was not, conf- uh, was not confined to one geographical location. God had gone global. God had gone throughout the whole world. He already was, but that one meeting place where the forgiveness of our sins could take place was in Jerusalem at the temple. Now, because of Jesus, that was not the case. This was something that the early churches had to wrestle through, and that's what Peter was trying to help them to recognize is the power of God at work to transform situations is present wherever his people are because he resides with them. God is with you because he has chosen to reside inside of you by his Spirit. Can I suggest this morning that one of the reasons that contemporary believers, uh, one of the things that we've got so wrong, just like me, you and me, we get this wrong so often, is that we become so complacent to the fact that God resides in us and with us, whereas for someone prior to the coming of Jesus, they were so well aware of the fact they needed to come to God, they needed to come up next to Him. Contemporary believers can become all too familiar that God's alongside them, that God's with us and He has plans for us, which is true, but He is also the God of purity, of holiness, of majesty. And we do not enter into His presence lightly. We come to the God who has, in an awesome way, come close to us. But we also have to remember that that is not something that we become complacent with. He is our maker. He is our master. He is our king. This is an awesome reality, and yet far too often we kind of forget it, don't we? I mean, I do. You may be far more spiritually enlightened and uh, far greater spiritual vitality than me, and that never happens to you, but I'll be honest in saying I think that you're probably lying. It's something that we all do. We forget that He is present and with us, and just how awesome a reality that is for us. Do you stop and marvel at how miraculous it is that Jesus resides in you by the power of the Spirit? The Spirit of God resides in you as a believer, and that means that you are with Christ before the face of God in every moment of your life. You do not have a private life. That's a lie of secular Western society. Everything we do, everything we say, everything we think happens before the face of God when we are in Christ. Do you stop and marvel at how miraculous this is? 
Isn't that good news as an exile? You've not been abandoned. You've not been left to the side to kind of work out what is going to happen next. Christ is in you. Christ is with you. And isn't that the sort of picture that we need to spur us on in the midst of the challenges? You know what it's like, don't you, when you're with your friends or when you're with your family, maybe with course mates if you've been studying or you're just getting alongside your work colleagues. They don't know Jesus. They frankly don't really care much about Jesus. And then they ask the questions. And that's when everybody goes, yes, this is what I've been waiting for. Isn't it? That's what everyone does. Nobody just goes, oh my goodness, I've got no idea what to do here. Right? I know that everybody's is really the second one. I don't know what to do here. But that's where this is so encouraging. Christ is with you. Christ is in you. Christ is in us as the people of God. God is building together his people from across the world to be one family. And when you are in the midst of these challenging situations, no matter what it is, we know for certain from his word that Christ is with us. If God is building together a family, surely this family has to have a purpose. God kind of doesn't do things without purpose. And what is that purpose? We are the outpost of God's purposes on earth. That's what we hear in this section, that we are becoming a royal priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. We have a purpose as part of this new family. Person by person, we are being built together to reflect and to announce and to display the wonders of the gospel of Christ crucified and risen. That's what this is all about. This is all about the glory of God. This is not about Martin personally just getting saved, although that's part of it. This is about God being seen to be the most glorious and most wonderful being in the entirety of creation, because when people see and recognize that from God's people, they begin to ask the questions. Person by person, we are being built together to reflect that, announce that, and to display that. See, this building project means a great deal of reconciliation is necessary. Too often we allow our cultural preferences to determine the heart of the gospel. Too often we allow our backgrounds and the way that we understand the world to make sense to actually shape and form what the gospel actually is. And frankly, that just won't do. Because that is turning around to God and saying, oh God, we'll tell you what the gospel is. And he says, excuse me? This is mine from start to finish. I, I don't understand what you're trying to say. I have made you a living stone. Uh, you were a dead brick. The reconciling grace and mercy of God is far greater than our social or ethnic inclinations. It's far, far greater than that. And as our community diversifies, and as Scotland is home to more and more languages and peoples, our call is to be living stones, alive to the purposes of God, awake to hear the different languages, awake to hear and see the different peoples around about us, awake and ready to engage with people across the class divide, and actually come to them and say, we have been made alive by Jesus Christ. Christ has made us living stones for a very specific purpose question for all of us is, are we living stones or are we dead bricks? 
You see, a living stone which has been built together into the household of the people of God is very different to a dead brick that has no purpose lying at the side of a construction yard. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a conference organized by a Ghanaian Pentecostal church, and Dr. Harvey Quiani, who is involved in uh, teaching at Liverpool University, a very capable uh, man, was uh, explaining something about African Christianity and the African diaspora in the UK. That's his focus of study. And he said this, very provocative and very challenging. He said, the, the, the British church, the UK church, has been praying for revival. And you see, when revival came, they did not recognize it because it was black. They did not recognize it because it did not look like them. It did not sound like them. It did not walk like them. You see, that is very provocative and very challenging to all of us, isn't it? Are we alive and awake, being built together with brothers and sisters across all of the boundaries and barriers to become the people of God that Christ has died to make us? Now, Peter is very deliberate about using the illustration of builders and the temple. He is quite simply quoting and using the illustration that he heard from the lips of Jesus about the leaders of Israel. That section about the stone the builders rejected becoming the capstone and the stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. These were things that Jesus said to the leaders of the people of Israel. You think that you've got this sewn up. You think that you understand how the God stuff works, don't you? Well, let me uh, invite you to think again, is what Jesus said. And that's what Peter is saying to the exiles. He's saying, let me invite you to think again about what it means to be an exile in the everyday. Go back to the cross. Go back to the shameful public and humiliating death of this preacher from Nazareth and see, in one sense, that the designs of these people who saw themselves as builders was completely flawed and didn't make sense. These men thought they were builders, but they just couldn't quite get it. The one who was the chief architect, God himself, was in the business of building and redeeming his people. He was acting according to a completely different set of blueprints. The stone which had been rejected, Jesus, was not only the centerpiece and the foundation, this stone was the long-awaited Messiah. He was the king who was to come. He is the one that the, the prophets and the law of God had spoken about consistently time after time after time. He is the cornerstone of history. And I'll be really blunt. You reject him at your peril. I don't know if you know Jesus this morning. You reject him at your peril because he is what this is all about. He is what the church is all about. He is what history is all about. He is what life is all about because he gave you the breath, the mind, and the abilities to say to him, I don't think you exist. We reject him at our peril. The foundation in which the presence of God is brought to us is in this most extraordinary and unexpected way, isn't it? It is through the crucified God. We see the fullness of God revealed in the one who was rejected and scorned, revealed in the one whose wounds make us whole. Through the crucified God, we see the glory of God revealed in its fullness. And yet it is possible for us to believe we are building life well. It's really possible for us to believe we are building life well, building how God wants 
and totally miss the point because we have the wrong picture in mind. Because we do not think of the crucified God who gives up all things in order for His people to be redeemed. We think about doing the right things and being able to bring them to God. You see, one of them gets the response from Jesus saying, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And the other one says, you are my child. Come into my presence. For in here there is healing, there is salvation, and there is life forevermore. This is true now as it was then. And it forces us to ask some really searching questions. Is it Christ who is present with you? Or is it a God of your own making? You see, because we lived in a culture where Christianity was the norm, many people go through life thinking they actually know God and they have no idea who He is. They've actually not got a clue who He is. Is He a God of our own making, a little bit like the Bible guy? He kind of says some of the Bible stuff, but actually isn't God. Can I urge you, like Peter does here, for those exiles who were in the midst of trying to work out what life was going to be like for them as people following God, to to not disobey the Word which shows us the purpose, uh, which shows us who God really is, and who also shows us what the Christian life is really like. It's about following a crucified God. You know, if we're to follow a crucified God, that probably means a lot of the things where we push ourselves forward are going to have to die. So, if that's the first picture about the picture of God's presence with His people, then the second picture that Peter points them to is the picture of God's people. Verses 9 and 10. Can I read them again? Because it's been a while since we've read them. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So, what is this second picture that he uses? Well, if it may at first seem a little bit abstract, it may seem like you've walked into, you know, one of those proper art galleries where you look at the picture in the wall and someone says, isn't that wonderful? And you go, that looks like something Sophia did in the kitchen. (laughs) It seems a bit abstract and a little bit distant, doesn't it? Because I look at this and read, I'm not royal. I'm certainly not part of the priesthood growing up in the west of Scotland. I know that I'm not these two things. So what do these things mean? What is that about? Now, if we take a step back, it's not actually as detached as we might think. Peter is pointing the believers back to the purpose of God's people that they received a whole long time ago, many, many years in the past. In the past, God's people had been slaves in Egypt, and we sang about that with the kids where Moses took them out of Egypt under the mighty hand of God. You might say these people had been exiles in a foreign land, something similar to where the people are here. Do you see Peter's not actually silly? He's quite clever. He knows what he's doing. He's linking the two things up. He's saying, our people were exiles in the past. This is no new thing we are facing today. They had no power, the people in Egypt. They were facing great trials and suffering under dictatorial rule, which led to the genocide of their firstborn children, particularly their sons. And yet in this situation, God shows up, God acts, and God transforms everything. He turns it upside down, and He redeems His people. 
They were no longer slaves, but part of the people of God. But that's not the end of the story. He saves them for a purpose, and that purpose hadn't been changed for the believers in Christ who found themselves all over that part of the world that we read earlier on in chapter 1. The promise of God was now their inheritance by faith. I'm quickly going to take us back to a section where this is revealed, and I don't often do this because it actually usually confuses people and they don't know where to go, but chapter 19 of the book of Exodus if you turn there with me, is on page 76. In fact, 77 is where we're going to read. And we're going to read verses 4 and 6 of this passage, because this is what Peter is directly quoting. And the reason I'm doing this is so that you, you recognize that I'm not just making this up at the front, that actually this has substantial basis. It's already what's been written, and Peter's not picking up any new pictures. So page 77 verse 4 to 6. We hear God saying before He brings the commandments to His people, He says this, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to Myself. Now, if you obey Me fully and keep My covenant, then out of all the nations you will be My treasured possession. Although the whole earth is Mine, you will be for Me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you're to speak to the Israelites. Now go back to page 1218. We're not going to be moving anywhere else after that. Sounds kind of the same, doesn't it? It's practically the same thing that we hear here. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Peter's not making anything up. He's not doing anything new. Any preacher that makes something new has actually kind of lost the point. They're simply to point you back to what's already been said. And even more wonderfully, through Jesus, a new and greater way had been opened up for the people of God. This picture was wonderful that had been given to them before they received the commandments, but it was even more wonderful through Jesus because it was not simply for people who were ethnically Hebrew. It was for all people to become part of the people of God. That's what he goes on to explain in verse 10, isn't it? This picture which we uh, see here comes time and time again in the history of the people of God, but it has now become a reality for people's, uh, people in Peter's day as it, had, uh, as it does for us today. That it is no longer just for one group of people who ethnically come from one descent. This is for anyone who trusts and knows Jesus Christ. They are a part of the people of God. And that meant they too were inheritors of the great privilege and the great responsibility of being a royal priesthood and of being a holy nation for God's glory. But again, I get to that and I go, what does that actually mean? It's good to ask those questions of the Bible. What does that actually mean? What does that look like in the nitty-gritty, everyday normality the boringness of everyday existence. What does this stuff mean? Well, Peter takes this picture and he reframes it through Christ and applies it into life. It's not just the one group of people. We are all closest. We are all close to God. In Christ, these exiles were the ones who had the pleasure of being near to God now. 
and had also inherited the privilege of leading other people to worship Him. They are now a spiritual house built on Jesus. He is the foundation of all of this, and they are offering worship to Him, and they are offering Him to others. And that's what it's meant by being part of a, a, a priesthood to God. We are people who want to worship this God for who He is and for what He has done, but we are not content with our own individual spiritual niceties. We want other people to join with us, because what a priest did in the Old Testament and what uh, the people of God do now is they offer God to others and say, come, come and worship. Come and see the God that made you, because He is glorious and is amazing and is wonderful. Come, that is part of the purpose of us as the people of God. But that was not all. The divisions and the disunity which had infused itself throughout humanity since the beginning of time, all of the ethnic and racial tensions which break up the world, these are transcended as part of the people of God because we're not just a priesthood inviting people to worship, we are a holy nation, one specific group of people, no division amongst us. You'll grow up to be a far better theological thinker than me. Eh? There is no dividing wall which is supposed to be present in the holy nation. These things are transcended. In Christ, we are a holy nation, a group of people who are not like the culture or the world in which we live, right? Pause, stop, because that sometimes gives people uh, license to be weirdos, Okay because it says, oh, we're not to be like the world around us, and you're like, yeah, but you're not to be a fruitcake, okay? You're not to be off the wall, okay? It's actually far more penetrating and far more difficult. It's actually easier to go out and be a fruitcake than it is to allow the, the Word of God to pierce every aspect and layer of our lives, because it means that out of love for Christ and out of love for others, we will do things and say things which automatically make us stand out. We will take stands on things which will make us unpopular. We will say things or not say things which will bring a target onto our lives. Or certainly, we should please never forget or downplay that being part of the people of God is an amazing privilege to be part of the holy nation and the royal priesthood, to be part of the church of God is an amazing blessing. Far too often, myself included, I find myself going, oh man, see, sometimes it's just getting in the way all the time, man. They just stop things and they don't do things properly. And, they just, and that's me speaking about my fellow brothers and sisters who I will spend eternity with, which means that my heart needs to be changed now because you're going to be with me then. We are far too quick to pick up the shotgun and go, pooh, that person's wrong, pooh, that person's wrong, and wait a minute, that person's wrong as well. And yet, actually, surely the most stupid and idiotic thing for a group of exiles to do in the midst of a hostile and foreign environment is to pick up the shotgun and shoot other people in the army. It's absolutely ridiculous makes no sense whatsoever. There is no battle strategy that exists in the world that says, if you go about killing your own army, that, that would be a good thing to do. You will win that way. There's nothing that exists that says that. You see, in exile, the, this is just silly. And that means that this 
heart of reconciliation, as being part of the, the, the holy nation and the royal priesthood, that these things have to, we, we need to be reconciled to each other, working in unity so that the gospel of God is seen in, in power amongst the people of God. Worship is the key to remembering our identity as the people of God. And that's at the very heart and the very center of it. That's why we are a holy nation and a royal priesthood. We, we have to come before God and worship, but not remain there in isolation. We see that worship overflowing into every aspect and area of our lives. If worship shapes our identity, then it also shapes our understanding of why we are here. We are all born worshipers, every person. You worship something, trust me. Just give me your bank account details. Show me your... Um, bank statement, and I'll tell you exactly what it is that you worship. Go home and do it. It's a good lesson. Helps to put you in check before God. We are all born worshipers, every person, because we are always laying ourselves before the feet of a priest somewhere. You know, we wouldn't say that, but it's true nonetheless. You might not say that you're a worshiper of something. You might just say that you really, really love it. You really, really like it. It really brings a lot of meaning to your life. It's not wrong to have things that bring meaning to life, but when that transcends the God who has made you and given you breath, questions must be asked. God in His mission invites us, His people, to live our lives in worship to Him. Everything we do, every moment that we have, every single thing, every blessing, every hardship to come before Him in worship, even in the darkest of situations, He invites us to worship because in doing this, His mission moves forward. We receive the blessing, and the, the, we receive the blessing, He receives the glory, and therefore the world recognizes that He is the greatest King and the greatest object of worship that there is in the world. In doing this, the mission moves forward, and the praise which rightly should be given to God by redeemed sinners happens. Worship is our identity, and worship is our purpose as part of the people of God. So, the inevitable question is this, isn't it? How's your worship? What do you worship? Who do you worship? You see, as the people of God lived out their lives in the Roman world, where peace came through violence and where status was won through conformity, only hearing the gospel of God again and again and again and again was the thing which was going to keep them from running off the line that was laid out in front of them. I've yet to hear or have a conversation with an older brother and sister in Jesus, and they've said this to me. I've kind of got past the basic gospel stuff. I've got past that. I've yet to find someone who is a, a, a dear elder brother or sister in the faith say that to me. In fact, every time I come to them, they usually say one thing. I was listening to a podcast a few weeks ago, and there's a man called Dick Lucas who was the um, vicar of a big church in the city center of London. And he said, I have heard so many young men preach so many sermons and they've been really big and complex, and I'm now in my 90s, and what I keep saying to them is, son, just give me Jesus. I was speaking at something down south recently, and a brother who's in his 50s, who's spent um, a lot of his life reaching out to Muslims cross-culturally in East Asia, came up to me just before I got up to speak, and he said, it's quite simple, Martin, I just want to hear about Jesus. Just give me Jesus. 
You see, friends, for us to live out the life of discipleship as exiles, we need to first of all recognize that we are exiles. And secondly, it means that we need to keep hearing the gospel of God's electing, sovereign mercy and goodness towards undeserving people at cost to himself. This is where the love-filled, grace-saturated, outsider-welcoming, joy-expressing outworking of the gospel keeps us on track. And it naturally makes people stop and notice. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What are the pictures that are at the forefront of your mind? Can I invite us to remember the picture of God's presence with us and also the picture of God's people as we live as exiles in the everyday? Can I pray? Father, we thank you, and in the quietness, we come to you. And we ask once again, would you remind us of your beautiful presence with us? And would you shape us to recognize once again the privilege of being a part of your people? and to allow your Spirit to show us once again, reframing all of our lives through uh, Jesus, how wonderful it is to be part of your people, so that we would live lives of worship to you, recognizing our purpose of worship and to see others worship you, and in so doing, Father, seeing you glorified to the ends of the earth, for your name deserves the worship of everything and everyone that exists. Make us these people, we pray, for your glory through Jesus. Amen. Well, let's uh, stand and sing in response. My heart is filled with thankfulness. We ask once again to be reminded that you are the one who forgives us of all of our transgressions when we come to you in Christ. We thank you that by the power of your Spirit at work in us, we have become new people, new creations called out of darkness into your light to declare the praise of the one who has changed us. And Father, we simply are giving back to you what you have given to us because you are the one who owns all things, because the earth is yours and everything that is in it. And so our prayer this morning, Father, is that throughout the earth today, you would continue your work of declaring your glory through your people to see many more people come to know, love, respond, trust, and announce the Lord Jesus throughout every area and aspect of the world, through all of the dimensions of life, through all of the different languages, through all of the different peoples, and even in our own community and our own city of Glasgow. Father, may you be glorified through the preaching of the Word of God and through the praising of your name by the people uh, that you have called in this area so that Christ would be seen as glorious and as the greatest treasure that the world has. Father, thank you for Jesus. May we present to you our lives as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you, for this is our spiritual act of worship, and this is what pleases you and brings glory to you through Christ. 
Hear us, we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Park Church Podcast. I hope you enjoy the sermon.